listen, it's not called your Emmy or our Emmy. It's my fucking Emmy. You know, so like people, people like behave that way. There's a real yeah. sense of like yeah. entitlement and selfishness. Just look at how we drive. All right, and welcome to the Darren Woodson Show. Uh, today, we've got a guest uh, that's that's really kind of unlike any guest that we've had uh, up to this point. Uh, we, we, we've gone the athlete route. We've gone the business route. We've gone um, the motivational <laughs> speaker. We've gone... And so now we're going to get into we're going to get into somebody that has produced uh, and created many many uh, titles and documentaries that are really at the top of the list of all documentaries made up to this point. Right? We had this rush for documentaries over the last you know ten years. Right? People have really dug into it, and and so uh, our guest Billy Corbin here created uh, Cocaine Cowboys, co-produced mm -hmm. uh, and created Cocaine Cowboys. 30 for 30, the U, and then the U part two. Those are just a few and of- And broke. And broke. Yeah. I mean, literally, like, when you think of, like, sports documentaries, what do you think of? 30 for 30. And what's the first 30 for 30 you think of? The U, U. and broke. Yeah. Yep. That's yeah. what everybody references and uses the stats that, that you learned in broke about and just stereotypes it to every single athlete. Mm -hmm. Oh, 80% yep. chance you're going to be broke. <laughs> so- but but we've got we've got the man himself on the show, Billy. Man, really appreciate you taking the time. And we were talking a little bit before we uh, we got rolling here uh, on uh, the current Miami U's hiring practices. And so, um, <laughs> you really want to go offered, down that road? <laughs> he offered. He actually offered Darren the job yeah. on the spot. So we're gonna wait for him to accept oh, or decline. Oh, no. I was I was throwing it out to the whole group. You know, I mean, anybody, anybody, anybody who will coach for food, we are interested da in you. Uh, David, our producer uh, backstage, he he said, "I'll take it." Oh, yeah. All right, come on. Bienvenido a Miami. Come on down. <laughs> No, I listen, I don't know what the hell's happening. I mean, we have no we have no AD and everybody's talking about firing the head coach of football. It's like, why? Like who's going to who's going to mm. hire the new one? And who's going to I mean like it's just I don't know. And then there's a lot of a lot of teams in the marketplace right yeah, now with a lot coaches. deeper pockets. Yes. Yeah, a lot deeper pockets yes. than the University of Coral Gables has down here. <laughs> and uh, and so I don't know exactly what they hope to accomplish. What I do know is that for the last 20 years some of these fans have needed to recalibrate their expectations and have just not done so. I mean, you know, I think big time college football has passed the university of Miami by, I say it lapped it mm. actually uh, several mm. times. And, and, and I just don't think that this is a team that can compete on the level of a major state school. And I just think that, that it, listen, fan is short for fanatic, yeah. which <laughs> does not indicate any kind of rational thought or logic. It's all, emotion and and faith and i would say this is re the real reason there's an off season is to reboot and to fool the fans into thinking <laughs> yes. this is our year this is our year baby you know make we're making all these moves and we're like ah get out of here we're, you know? so we're I, I in mean, dallas we don't know what that's like ever yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We're super bowl champs <laughs> next year yes yeah, guaranteed we're, we're, we're in miami uh where the, where the miami dolphins have entered their fifth consecutive rebuilding decade so that's where <laughs> That's, that's where I, that's where I live, yeah, but that's yeah. the thing about, but that's the thing about Miami. It's all about 
reinvention, yeah. right? They say that LA is where you go when you want to be somebody. New York is where you go when you are somebody. And Miami is where you go when you want to be somebody else. That, right? It's always, uh. always, always, always has been, is, and always will be a sunny place for shady people. And so like, <laughs> and so like, we're, and we're like also one of America's youngest cities. So like we are, the United mm. States is perpetual belligerent teenager where we always want the new shit, right? <laughs> Give me the, we don't, we have, we have a transient population, a lack of institutional memory, no respect for like our history or, in, or our institutions. We're just like, give me the new shit. Give me the hot shit. Yeah. I mean, we don't, I mean like, like, like we don't even have this logo anymore, which is the last time anybody associated this franchise with winning. Yeah. And like, mm. like now they had that logo where it's like, it looks like a SeaWorld swim at the dolphins exhibit logo <laughs> yeah. or some shit. And like, <laughs> and nobody, nobody cares. Like unless it's throwback Jersey night, nobody, right. nobody cares about the dolphins. Yeah. So do you think, and I've always, I've always wondered this cause I played in South Florida for a little bit. And do you feel it's similar to California where it's really hard to get the fan base to buy into the teams? Do you think that there's a loyal fan base in South Florida as opposed to like Southern California? Dude, Dude, biggest mistake MLB ever made was actually bringing a franchise to Florida Mm -hmm. instead of just using it and exploiting it as the stalking horse when they're renegotiating sports welfare with other (laughs) municipalities. That was always the joke, right? We'll move to Florida. I mean, that was like, that was what Slapshot was about. For crying out loud. (laughs) It was like, we're going to move to Florida, right? We'll move to Florida. We'll move to Florida. And then they got whatever concessions they wanted. Local government started to like make Mm -hmm. it, oh, you want a new ballpark. You want this. You want no taxes, whatever you want. And the biggest mistake they ever made was actually Tampa, and Miami Miami. like nobody actually the two I mean the worst attendance in the leagues consistently Mm -hmm. um and so huge mistake and I think what it is well first of all the great thing about Miami is well first of all that it's so close to the United States but the other (laughs) great thing the other great thing about Miami is that there's something for everybody to do right you know you like art you like you like every genre of music you like you know um you like sports, you like soccer, you like football. There's something for everybody, but that just means that the markets get really siloed, right? Mm -hmm. So it's just like, so everything becomes like more of a niche, right? And not to mention, nobody can afford to buy season tickets to every friggin' professional and amateur sports Mm -hmm. league and and, and team that there is. You you just can't. So as as there's like, oh, now there's professional soccer, now there's professional hockey, now there's professional uh, basketball, as that grows people don't suddenly have like a new sack of money, <laughs> like yeah. a new income stream to buy everybody. It's diverted income. That's the big, that's the big scam about sports welfare. It's like, Oh, it creates all this, all these jobs and all this economic benefit. It doesn't because people don't just suddenly have a new income stream to spend. So, yeah. It's all diverted income. It's less money you're spending mm-hmm. on other entertainment mm-hmm. options or other restaurants or going to the movies or you're just now spending it someplace else really to the benefit of some, billionaire, right. <laughs> billionaire right. team yeah. right. owner, you know, that's always the crazy thing to me is that like with fans, it's just like, okay, the first guy who will go on Yelp and destroy some local entrepreneur's business because he had one bad meal for 50 bucks. Oh yeah. It's all like devout about a sports franchise. And it's like, dude, what are you, what is this? Like, I don't understand what's so sacrosanct about a professional sports franchise. First of all, it's not even, 
like the Dolphins, we're three owners from the last time this team was good. Okay. There's not a, there's not a team. There's not a person on the staff or on the field that I recognize the last time I associated this team with winning with all due respect. So what are you so like, what are people so devoted to a lot? It's not even the same logo. It's not, you know, it's like, it's not even the same stadium. Like what is your, you're dedicated to this billionaire's toy. Like, cause that's like, that's what these things are. Listen, gone are the days of the Jerry Joneses of a guy whose business was owning a sports mm, team. Right yeah. now it's just, now it's just like some guy who I listen, I already, how many private islands can you own? Yeah. You know, how right. many Rolls Royces can you own? I'll get the, I'll get one of the rarest things on earth. It's like a Fabergé egg. I'm going to buy a professional mm. American sports team. Like what's mm. more badass to show off than oh, that? So that yeah. Become, yeah. That's yeah. it. That, in hey. the business community, yeah. that's it. Right. It's hey. like, okay, when you've arrived, then you own a sports team. Like that is that is ultimately what it is, yeah. Billy. Yeah, it's gonna be okay, man. <laughs> it's going not, to be okay, Billy. Not, yes, it is. Not, yes, it not, is. I assure. Listen, it, it fucking floods in a drizzle down here. Me it's gonna be okay. Fucking, I'm going. I'm going. I'm, I'm riding down the sidewalk in a kayak, and you're telling me it's okay? What are you talking about? It's not gonna. It's not gonna be okay. All right. It's just a question of what's going to be underwater first, my mortgage or my house? Yeah. Like, you know, that's, that's the only question, dude. Oh, hey, my gosh. Hey, but, <laughs> hey, but people are in shape in Miami, and they got beaches. Got so it's beach. all worth it. It's, it's all worth beach. it. I don't know. I don't know. I, 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 didn't, I didn't get the COVID-19, but I did get the COVID-25, if you hear what I'm saying. I don't know. Oh, man. Oh, Billy, uh, let's let's go back, though. We want to hear about your journey, where you grew up, what that was like, how you got into to film and production <laughs> and comedy. And <laughs> <laughs> so w- take us back to the very beginning. And, and how how did you create these these, you know, staple documentaries that you did? You know, I'm a Florida native. I was born in uh, in Fort Myers, mm. uh, Florida, mm-hmm. um, in 1978, and we moved down to Miami though when I was about three years old. So I'm a I'm a native Floridian and a lifelong Miamian. Um, and man, you know, Twitter might have a 280 character limit, but Florida has unlimited characters. I mean, let me tell you. I mean, <laughs> I'll, I mean, I'll second just, that. Yeah. yeah, it is. And and moving down to Miami in like 81, 82, just as the homicide rate was peaking. Um, these were exciting, exciting days. Um, and, uh, you know, we were exposed to a lot of color, you know, yeah, and, mm-hmm. and we were, we were exposed to a lot of, uh, a, a lot of sports and a lot of entertainment and a lot of culture that was just unique. Yeah. It was indigenous to this area. It was unique to this area and it was being exported, uh, internationally throughout that decade, you know, whether it was, um, you know, the true live crew and music, whether mm. it was Luke. Miami Vice, Miami on Vice television, yep. or Starface uh, on the big screen. Um, there was just like, uh, and, and then the, after the Mario boat lift, just the extraordinary mm. influence of becoming developing into a minority majority town. Yeah. Um, in 1980, I think 1980 is one of in, in Miami, Miami, 1980 is one of the most, uh, powerful and influential and, 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 and seismic years in any major city in history. What you had here was, uh, uh, you know, I always say the Miami of today is the America of tomorrow. If you want to know what challenges will face or calamities will befall us as a nation in the years or even decades to come, you need only look at 
Florida and particularly South Florida as what TD Ullman uh, uh, in in uh, in Miami uh, City of the Future called it America's bellwether, the canary in the coal mine. And so I would say Miami is the city of the future and always will be. Um, and uh, but what we saw happen in 1980 was. Um, we saw the uh, McDuffie riots, which were was an uprising uh, in in Miami's inner city communities after a um, a uh, a black motorist insurance salesman and veteran was beaten to death by white and Hispanic police officers uh, for speeding on his motorcycle and which they attempted to cover it up. And then an all white, all male jury in Tampa, uh, which is the Florida of Florida, um, <laughs> acquitted them and uh, Miami burned in what to this day adjusted for inflation are some of the deadliest 18 people died and, and, and most damaging. It was over a billion dollars in property damage in some communities where to this day in 2021, you still see empty lots that were never redeveloped mm. after the fires of the McDuffie riots in 1980. At the same time, you had the Mariel boat lift, which mm-hmm. brought an influx of 125,000 new immigrants from Cuba mm-hmm. to Miami, to South Florida, In six months, boom, all of a sudden you had the resources stretched so thin in four in the four southern counties, Palm Beach, Broward, Dade and Monroe, that you almost bankrupted um, South Florida. Um, And then you had the cocaine wars just starting and spilling over onto the streets uh, of Miami. Um, And we survived it um, and and arguably uh, 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 grew from it. But those are some pretty intense uh, growing pains. And and so, yeah. But I was acutely aware of that as a kid, just like how was imitating life was imitating art was imitating life. That Mm -hmm. cycle was already starting here before our eyes in in Miami. So what was your what was your personal experience all as all this is going on? Because we we've had this conversation before. Darren, Darren, his wisdom is says, you know, things are crazy right now, but things have always been crazy. There's always been these times where we have all these things going on, but there, the difference is there wasn't social media back then. So for you personally, I mean, how much, how aware of, of all these things were you growing up in that environment? Yeah, I think things are magnified as, and we're, we're more acutely aware of, mm-hmm. of, of the fuckery as a result <laughs> of social media. Um, but I, I mean, I, I, and I would argue that, that, that these times are particularly are uniquely tumultuous. Um, uh, but we have survived similar times. I think the differences though, are not only the amplification of the problems uh, by social media, but the, the problems themselves mm-hmm. being amplified by social media. Yeah. So, uh, which makes them a little bit tougher to combat and remedy. Um, but I was, that's the thing is like in Miami, I was a kid. I mean, let's mm-hmm. be real. I was a little white Jewish kid living in a, you know, like a working class neighborhood in Miami. Um, first we moved to a place called North Miami beach, a city with beach in the name, but no beach in its border. Um, that's the, the story of, of, of Florida real estate, lies that came true, and some of which that, that never never came true, but we still got your money. Um, that's, that's Florida. Um, but um, I, it's tough to see the forest for the trees. Obviously, I have the benefit of hindsight going, those were exciting times. Mm-hmm. But we knew that something, I didn't know that it was unique because this is the only environment I ever knew, but right. I knew it was fascinating Uh um Uh and i knew that it was uh exciting and i knew that going to the orange bowl was a very dynamic and thrilling environment as a kid and i knew that there was danger i was aware of danger um because the town was literally crime ridden Uh Uh, and i was aware of money 
here we are in this in this um i wasn't aware of drugs because i was a little kid you know mm-hmm. single digits so but i was aware of money i was aware of affluence and success and i was aware of that because here, here we were as i said in this working class this modest single family home kind of neighborhood where everybody was working but everybody had like you know typical jobs they were school teachers real estate car dealers you know they, they just had working working stiff kind of jobs and but everybody had a new toy mm. um you know there was a porsche in the driveway someone was expanding the house adding a second story um there was always a little something something going on now these people were not in the drug business but you see miami in that, that era, you knew of <laughs> You know what? Well, some of the, later, some of them maybe were, but usually recreation, recreational drug users, not so much in the business itself. But but what you had was what no matter what business you were in, the rising tide was raising all ships. Mm. To use an unfortunate mm-hmm. metaphor, an unfortunate <laughs> sea level rise metaphor. But um, but, but the truth is that um, the only I call it the only um, successful real life case study. Reagan's trickle-down economics. It worked here in Miami during the drug boom. Mm. There's no doubt about it. You had people who were generating billions of dollars. The stats are crazy. I think Time Magazine said back in the early 1980s that like our number one industries, number top two industries were like uh, tourism, which generated seven billion a year in Miami, uh, real estate, which generated nine billion a year in Miami, and the drug trade, which generated twelve billion a year yeah. uh, in in Miami. So, what you had though was that the kingpins—it wasn't like banditos that would rob a bank and then loot and ride on into the next town and make it rain. Those kingpins resided here. They, 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 and so that money got spent everywhere and on everything. And so you had this situation where the money literally trickled down into every facet of society, whether you were in the trade, weren't in the trade. If you were selling Dom Perignon, we were the number one purveyor, you know, this, uh, 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 consumers of Dom Perignon in the, in the world, the number one consumers of Rolex watches in the world, the number one consumers of luxury cars in the world. They used to joke in the 80s, the student parking lot at the University of Miami looked like a luxury car mm-hmm. dealership, okay? Because because you had the the, the, the basically the cocaine Prince and princesses, you know, of the cocaine cowboys who were attending the school. I guess Miami took tuition and payments in cash, I guess, uh, at that time. <laughs> um, but you had just so much money down here. Um, I, I, one of the great stats from cocaine cowboys is that um, the uh, Federal Reserve branch in Miami had a cash surplus that was greater than all of the Federal Reserve branches in the entire country combined. Oh and you had gosh. banks that were that would charge you a big for depositing cash because it became a liability because it's real estate. Mm. Where the hell do you put all this cash? Mm. And as the medical examiner pointed out in the, in the original documentary, if you examined any bill, you took a, a bill that was $20 or higher denomination in Miami in that time and did a test on it, you would find traces of cocaine on mm. every single mm. bill. Every so, single one. Yeah, so we we knew that something was up. We knew that like these were interesting times, and even through a recession, we had a building boom and a luxury condo boom, and and there was there was just weird shit happening, and and we didn't know that it was weird compared to a normal place to live because this is where we live, but we knew that it was like I said that it was exciting and it was and it was different. So you're growing up and and you're you're acutely aware of what's going on, right? You mentioned danger, and you recognize, okay, look, there's crime everywhere. Um, 
there's there's has to do something with drugs and and this is about the time that dare the dare program in schools i'm sure was yeah. being implemented right just so, say no just yeah say that's no. right yeah right so so you're yeah, acutely aware of this going on and then you know like whether you outside of the bubble recognize it's going on anywhere else but you say okay look it's going on here so I mean, from a safety standpoint, what, where did you find that sense of security and safety? Because there, again, there was a lot of, a lot of things that are just up in the air and, and whether you were raised to know it, they're still just like, man, like, I don't know if I'm going to get robbed, if my car's going to get stolen, if I'm going to get murdered, whatever it is, if I'm, I'm in the middle of a drug war or a gang war over territory, whatever it is. So where did you find that at that time? I was a kid and, and we just heard the horror stories mm. and, and for a while they, they were not apocryphal. They were not urban legends. This shit was happening mm. and, and it was happening in our neighborhood too. That was, that's the thing about Miami is it's so tribal, you know, and, and, and we you, like, you can't get into a road rage incident until you see which flag is hanging from the rear view mirror, you know? <laughs> so like, so you know what's going on, but like, but we do that. We plant our flags and we self segregate in this community. There's a common misconception that Miami is a, uh, uh, is a melting pot. We are not a melting pot. We are far more akin to a TV dinner where sometimes the peas fall into the mashed potatoes, you know, because we do, we like, and, 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 and we have these neighborhoods and, and, you know, what it, what it allows us to do is to like, not give a shit to like about other people to like oh. insulate and to not really care about community. So it's like, Oh, if this shit isn't affecting me and mine in this area, then okay. what do I care about yeah. what's happening down South or wherever, you know, or mm -hmm. out West or, or whatever. Um, Cause we have a lot of Miami Dade covers a lot of ground uh, geographically. So it enables us to, to do, you know, like, listen, it's not called your Emmy or our Emmy. It's my fucking Emmy, you know? So like people, <laughs> people like behave that way. There's a real yeah. sense of like yeah. entitlement and selfishness. Just look at how we drive, you know, like, you know um, it's just like how it's, it's, it, I'm not proud of it, but it's just like, I got to call you know, calls it like I sees it. And, and, um, and, and it's part of what makes it listen, the, the essential ingredient for drama is conflict. And in mm -hmm. Miami, we have plenty of conflict. We should all just chill the fuck out and enjoy this. You know, it's not that bad <laughs> of a lifestyle, <laughs> yeah. but like, but like we work so hard to make it unpleasant for each other and to, and to degrade this quality of life. I don't really, I don't really get it. Um, to be honest. And, and I was hoping that, that, well, part of the reason was I mentioned it earlier, the transient population, everybody here was from someplace else. Mm -hmm. You know, you could talk to someone who'd been here for 40, 50 years, ask them where they're from. They go Chicago, Philly, Baltimore, LA, New York, New Jersey, whatever. Everybody was some from, from someplace else. And so, but recently we have more, we have the 305 till I die generation, like people who were born and raised in Miami because they're like fourth generation, you know, uh, Haitian Americans or Cuban Americans or, 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 you know, Anglos. We're probably the only American city that calls our Caucasian population Anglos, but we <laughs> yeah. do. Um, you know, Anglo-Saxon. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Not know, many. But we do. Yep. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't know who else does that. I don't, I don't think you do that in, in anywhere in Texas, but like, um, <laughs> excuse me. Um, but like, um, you know, and, and I, I've seen a little bit of that pride, but I haven't really seen us treat each other any better, which is a, which is kind of a shame. And, and, and the tragedy of that is that this, this is a community. This is a collective experience. We are in this together. We're sitting in the same traffic, you know, like so we're all, yeah. we're all dealing with the same shit. Um, and, and, and so that, but that tribalism creates really interesting conflict, yeah. you know, and, and you learn here to, to try to find a way to respect the different tribes, you know, in America, people like to paint Latin Americans and Hispanics with one broad brush. We know better. 
There is, there, you know, there's there, one thing Hispanics don't really care for is to be called Hispanic. Mm-hmm. They like to be identified and respected by their nation of origin. Mm-hmm. You are Cuban, mm-hmm. you are Dominican, yep. you're Puerto Rican, you're Mexican. These are, these are different. They're Guatemalan. These are different cultures in different countries. They have different flags and you have to have to respect that. Um, and there's a lot of like tension between them as well. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, a, and a lot of nationalism and pride. Uh, amongst those populations so you just there's a there's just like a lot of that kind of color down here and it, and and again the miami of today is the america of tomorrow mm-hmm. so you know as we saw um you know the last generation uh hip-hop culture become the dominant force yeah. in american culture and miami was breeding and exporting a lot of that culture uh in music in fashion uh in, in well ever in sports god knows um you know i mean for quite you know i mean you're you're welcome for Michael Irvin and Jimmy Johnson, but like, you know, but like, um, you know, so like, so, uh, Miami just became, it was always an exciting and and dynamic place and continues to be. We are always on the cutting edge of fuckery. You know, we are always, if we don't invent the scheme or the scam, we perfect it here. And then, and then we export it to the, to the rest of the country. All right. We're going to take a quick break from the episode and recognize an opportunity that we all have. It, if you are having a hard week or you just need some R&R, here's what you got to do is you got to drive up 75 north, cross the Red River to Durant, Oklahoma, to Choctaw Casino and Resort. It is the best getaway that you can mm. get if you're in the Dallas area by far. And guess what? If you're listening from somewhere outside of DFW, say you're in South Texas or you're in another state, which we've yeah. got some listeners uh, in other states. Fly into Dallas, drive up. It is worth every penny. You don't have to go to Vegas anymore to have a world-class experience at a world-class resort and casino. Yeah, we talk about the restaurants that are up there, those steakhouses. We talk about the concert venue. Uh, we, we had a conversation with Aaron Watson previously, and he talked about the, the intimacy. Every single seat in that concert venue is right on top. And there's not a bad seat in the house. There's not. And so these artists talk about it's one of the best places to play. And so go check, check out your, yourself a concert, the spa, the, the brand new expansion, I mean, it's just such a good time. To your point, Tyler, if you need a break, things are getting crazy, times are tough, get up there, get up to Choctaw Casino Resort, have yourself a great time. We, we experience it. We love it. Uh, they're doing great things in the community. Can't say enough good things, and we're so grateful for their partnership. That's Choctaw Casino Resort. Go check them out. Now back to the episode. You just mentioned two, yeah, two people, that my, uh, Jimmy Johnson, Michael Irvin. And when I became the Dallas Cowboy, we were basically Miami Central. Basically, everybody on our team was freaking from, from Miami or played somewhere in there. And it's a different mentality. It's a flamboyant mentality. And you said one thing that really stuck with me. It's my Miami. It's Miami, right? And these some bitches on our team, man, I'm, I'm going to call them what they are. First of all, I couldn't understand what the fuck they were talking about half the time. Like, they, they had their own dialect in the locker room. So you couldn't understand that. But then... There was something about the individuals where there was a true belief in, you just mentioned being tribal. It's tribal in a way that they truly believe in who they were and who their family was and who their, their friends were, specifically in that Dade County area. It was, you mean, it was tribal in a sense where there was a lot of pride. They dressed flamboyantly, purple and green don't match all the time. Fuchsia and you know there was just a little bit of everything so I get it I get where you're coming from yeah. because it's almost like Miami is like a big it's it's an inner city in its own self because you go to any other inner city like a Chicago or Watts or Compton or whatever it is East St. Louis they 
hold together. There's a certain group. The way they go about their business is I care about my shit. I don't give a damn what's going on on the other side. I care about me. And that's how Miami is. And, and you have to remember, in this era in which uh, the University of Miami was coming up, and Michael Irvin, who's from Broward, who's from yep. Fort Lauderdale, who's from from South Florida, um, that they were coming up uh, in the '80s into the '90s. As I mentioned before, Miami was becoming a minority majority mm-hmm. community, um, and that minority was not African American; it was Cuban American who were establishing their power base here and overtaking any opportunities that the African-American community might, Mm -hmm. any inroads they might have made politically and economically. And so one of the great uh, uh, shames of of this country is that African-Americans are treated as second-class citizens in many communities. What was happening in Miami is the African-American community was being pushed to Mm third-class citizen uh, Mm -hmm. status because the Cuban-Americans were taking over. Anglos were actually being pushed to second-class citizens. And then Haitian-Americans and Bahamians, Fourth class it is. I mean, it was a very clear hierarchy that was very, I think, influential on the psyche of young people growing up. It made it made me more hyper aware of the tribalism, number one. But number two, it created an environment, particularly in the mostly affluent Anglo and Hispanic Coral Gables, which is where the University of Miami is actually located. Mm-hmm. Talk about real estate. University of Miami is not even in Miami, <laughs> by the way. Never has right. been, never will be. It's in the city of Coral Gables, very affluent community. And suddenly you had a tribe within a tribe within a tribe, right? I mean, here mm-hmm. is the football program in a university, in a city, in a county. Uh, that was, it was another world. And you had a situation where, and I think a lot of people described it, a lot of former players, white and black alike, described it as a gang. The mm-hmm. University of the yeah. Hurricanes yeah. were, and, and because gangs are how you survive. Right. You, you insulate yourself, you mm-hmm. surround yourself with like-minded people who have your back, mm-hmm. who you can trust and who trust you when you are strangers in a strange land. Right. And that's how they got by. And that me against the world mentality, which they certainly exported uh, to Dallas. I'll tell you right now, when I told people I was making a documentary about uh, uh, cocaine cowboys, they thought it was about y'all. That's what they thought of. That's what they, they thought of. Like, oh, you're going to interview Michael Irvin? Oh. Cowboys? Like, no, no, Are you going to take shots not inside the White House? Cowboys. No. Not that, not that cocaine cowboy. Not that cocaine cowboy. So, so th- this is uh, interesting because you're right. You, you said something earlier. The, the perception is Miami's a melting pot and everybody's just, you know, everybody just associates with everybody. That's what, that's what I assumed. Mm-hmm. I assumed you guys, I mean, everybody, you're just comfortable with everybody, but it makes a lot yeah. of sense what you're saying that you do stick to what you know and what you know is people that are like that. You. There are places like that, you know, like on a given night, mm-hmm. you know, but like for the most part, everybody kind of goes back yeah. to, 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 to theirs. Yeah, it's, 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 to, it's like the New York boroughs, right? Like where, okay, the Italians stay together, mm-hmm. the Jewish stay together, stay, yeah. you know, yeah. it, it, it's, it's, it's very similar. And one of the, one of the things too, like good and bad about this, right? One is, is there's a, there's a, a very big emphasis on their, their uh, country's origin, the culture that it brings. So you get some eclectic, you get some really great food, you get a lot of art, you get a lot of things that come from their native country, which is awesome. Mm. But to your point, in South Florida, they just don't give a shit about anybody. And like, so I went, my journey was was California, (laughs) Chicago, Houston. So, okay, you got the Midwest, everybody's nice. Everybody in Chicago, you're a bear, everybody loves you, right? Then you go to Houston, now you got that Southern hospitality feel. And then you go to Miami and like, whoa, these people are mean. <laughs> like they're just mean. Like, but it's but it really is. I just don't care. 
I don't care about you. Like right. if you're if you're not helping me, eh, I don't have time for you. Like and that's and that's kind of the mentality. So like my wife and I, we we had a one year old at the time, so it was like oh. it was totally different, right? It was for us, it was like this is not Texas for sure. <laughs> and then but but there's so many cool like beautiful things that come out of it. Mm. Um, I mean, I just think of like, I mean, you look at like the Wynwood district and the design district, like North Miami area, right? Like there's a lot of like really cool, like eclectic things, like all mixed in there. But that yeah, to his point, it's definitely, yeah, definitely no, segregated. No, res- no respect. I mean, listen, you go from, um, watch a Dolphins game or a, or, or a Hurricanes game from Joe Robbie stadium or whatever the hell it's called this week. And, um, <laughs> you know, they, they Wait, it's not hard rock anymore. <laughs> Whatever, fine. It's hard. Whatever you <laughs> no, I, I don't think it is. I think you're always, actually right. <laughs> it'll always be Joe Robbie Stadium to me. That's the OG name, and he paid for the damn thing. So at least <laughs> we could do is, is call it uh, Joe Robbie Stadium. But um, they, you know, you'll go from a shot on the field during a broadcast, crossfade to a blimp shot overhead, crossfade to Ocean Drive. Motherfucker, Ocean Drive is 18 miles away. Okay, it's like it's like six it's like six cities away. You you think that stadium was right on the Atlantic Ocean yeah. or some shit? Yeah. Like, it's bizarre. It's bizarre. You know, it's like well, it's like when LeBron said, "I'm gonna take my talents to South Beach." Like, no, you're not. You're going to my, the city of Miami uh, for crying out loud. Uh, Hard Rock Stadium, Joe Robbie Stadium, is in Carroll City. It's in Miami Gardens. Mm-hmm. It is one of Florida's first and only. Black cities. I mean, black. The government is black. The right. constituents are black. It is a very unique and, and important and historic community. And no respect. I mean, like mm. you can't even the NCAA and the NFL. Like no one gives a shit. Like it's just like, oh yeah, we're here on South Beach. Like you know, come on, get out. We're on Ocean Drive. Get out. Right. You know, <laughs> yeah. like you know, have some have some respect for for community and for culture uh, and for for geography for, uh. for reality. Crying out loud, but it's 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 a complicated place like that. But listen, that's why it's so interesting. Yeah. If you want to apply your trade, whatever your trade may be, if your trade is football player, if your trade is storyteller or journalist or trauma surgeon or uh, you know or police officer or lawyer, there is no more interesting place, yeah. uh, probably in this country, possibly in this world, right. to do what you do than than, than South yeah. Florida. So you, you mentioned that Billy storytelling and journalism. Go back to, okay, hey, how this started for you? Because you obviously have a gift for telling a story. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So when when did that gift kind of come to the forefront? Was it was it junior or high school? You're like, hey, look, I just want to like tell these stories. I mean, when did this, that your, your trade really become clear to you and you started pursuing it? Well, you know, I, I always, you know, I was one of those kids with the, you know, who stole dad's video camera making home movies and directing and writing shit and just having that kind of fun. Like you guys probably went and played football in the street. Like my brother did like literally in the street with the football, with the neighborhood kids, I was in the backyard making movies. Like that was my, that was my thing. Also my, my, my dad's dreams for my sports career kind of, kind of collapsed at my first at bat at the North Miami beach optimist T-ball league, which was a strikeout. Uh, so that was pretty much the end of pretty yeah. much the end of that. I um, love how he went through the whole league. It was grand grand opening, grand closing uh, right there uh, for me. I mean, I just like no, I mean like I, I, I made contact with the T, but it turns out that's a strike. So that wasn't that wasn't so good. Um but I was much more into to that other shit. And so I found, honestly, it's team building. I found like-minded friends. Mm. One of my producing partners, David Sipkin, to this day, I know him since preschool. So we're single digits. I work with him every day today. This is 40 years almost later. Um, Our other partner, uh, Alfred Spellman, 
I met him in TV production class in middle school. And we had a teacher, Miss Spicer, from Carroll City, actually. Uh, 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 shout out Rick Ross. Shout out Triple C's. Uh, and we, and she literally handed us the key to the to the TV studio in the middle school and said she she saw something in us and partnered us up. Uh, this is like 90, 93? Partnered us up um, and said, you guys produce the daily morning news broadcast. And we're, we still work together. Uh, mm, after Miss wow. Spicer uh, put us partnered us up in 91, 92, whatever the hell that was. And we started our first production company when we were sophomores in high school, like official production oh, wow. company. And we were, we were too young. It was a Florida sub chapter S corporation. And our dads had to be the officers because we were like 14. <laughs> so we weren't old enough to be, you know, president, vice president, treasurer and everything. Um, and so we just always kind of knew what we wanted to do. And, and, um, and so it wasn't that like far of a stretch for us. Now, what we thought was we wanted to be what, like Steven Spielberg, right? That's mm-hmm. like, you know, it's like every, that's the dream, right? You want to, and, and to that end, you know, we were writing scripts. We were doing narrative stuff, dramatic mm-hmm. stuff, scripted stuff. Um, the documentary thing happened totally by accident, totally, totally by accident. Um, and that's a whole other story. Yeah. So, yeah, no, we need to go down that road. Yeah. Let, t- tell us that cool. story. How did it get started? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, listen, we, um, we just, we're lucky that we, cause we, cause we have our, like, I, I feel like an analog guy, like, you know, stuck in a, in a digital world, you know, like I still can't get over the fact that we film shit mm-hmm. and it's all zeros and ones on a hard drive. Like it makes the fact that there isn't a master tape that it's not like tactile that it doesn't mm-hmm. make, it makes me nervous, you know, yeah. like it's like, right. it's not real. It doesn't really, it's like this very ethereal, scary kind of a, 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 a concept to me, but we were, we were, we're just young enough where we were agile, where we're like, cause we shot our first, like one of our early projects on super 16 film, mm-hmm. you know, on Kodak mm-hmm. film, you know? And so, but, but Al- Alfred specifically was always like kind of keeping up with the cutting edge. And like, I remember we were shooting on film. We had this great young DP, Armando Salas, really talented guy. Shoots a lot of great shows out in LA now. And he was a devout film guy, total artist. Right. Mm-hmm. And Alfred's like, 10 years from now, there will be no film. Everything will be digital. And I remember almost exactly 10 years later, that's when the major mm, film labs wow. started to shut down, like one after the other. And film isn't dead by any stretch of the imagination, but it was like, he mm. was like almost spot on, like in terms of seeing the writing on the wall a decade in advance. And you know, we, were, we, got like, we got our DSL line as fast as we could. Because we were like we were all all about the uh, um, you know downloading shit and um, and that what was it called that Napster life Napster, Napster. Ooh, yeah. Ooh. Um, the, the fact that in ninety minutes on a dial up you could download one song for free. <laughs> hey, and if you downloaded the wrong Mind song, wrong. your computer oh. your computer was yeah. trash. Yeah. There's always, always some always some asshole right who downloaded yeah. download some bullshit thing. Yeah, but uh. like but like but like we like we saw the writing and like we saw like listen. If this is happening with the, the the U.S. Postal Service, right, is is getting killed from email, and the newspaper and print business was starting to get killed from the internet, and the music business was starting to get killed. Like it was, all, this shit was only going to get faster, right, mm-hmm. and better, and the tech was only going to improve, and before long, it was going to really disrupt our industry. But what was already happening prior to the democratization of distribution that way was the democratization of production where cameras were getting smaller, cheaper, and better mm-hmm. in the digital realm. And so Alfred's like, we should shoot something digital. 
And I had seen some digital projects, you know, Blair Witch had come out around mm-hmm. then. And, and um, that was clever because that was a found footage concept. They built in the digital video into the concept of yeah. the movie. And a lot of projects at that time, like Chuck and Buck and, and Series 7, were incorporating the, the idea that it was on video into the concept of their scripted story. And so I, I knew, listen, even if you weren't a sophisticated, like, film person or tech person, you were going to watch a digital video and you knew that shit wasn't Mary Poppins. That mm-hmm. wasn't E.T. That wasn't, you knew it felt different. It didn't have the warmth of film, even if you couldn't technically put your finger on it. So I was like, you know what? People have been watching TV news and docs for so long in a video format. Mm-hmm. It seems that they'd be more, the audience would be more forgiving. Why don't we make a documentary? Why don't we do a nonfiction thing? And so, also, Alfred's having the tech conversation. I'm having the genre, or the, or the, not really the genre, but the, but the, the, the type of story and the type of film that we would make, type of project we would do, landing on nonfiction. And at the same time, we started hearing from friends who went to University of Florida um, about a story that was breaking in the spring of 1999 out of the Delta Chi fraternity house. Um, and it was an exotic dancer uh, had been hired to perform at a Big Brother, Little Brother pledge event at the fraternity house. Uh, and she had claimed she had run half naked the following early the following morning, like right at dawn to a neighboring fraternity house, claiming that she had been assaulted uh, by one of the fraternity men and that the entire attack had been captured on videotape. And that videotape by just a a horrific set of circumstances, including some quirks of the Florida legal system, found its way as a public record. And suddenly the video was being labeled the quote rape tape. And it became like an almost, I don't know, became a, a cause celeb in this small college town in Gainesville, Florida. And there was such a backlog of requests for this public record that if you got a VHS copy of it, because um, anybody who made a request and sent in a blank tape or delivered a blank tape to the clerk of courts of the state attorney's office, you could get this tape. And so wow. if you were the first one on your block to get it, people were throwing like keg parties to watch this oh, tape. Geez. And it, it just blew up. And we were hearing about this tape. And what was interesting about it is I heard from a couple guys that I'd grown up, grown up with in the old neighborhood in uh, like the North Miami Beach area. And one guy called me up and said, um, have you heard about the tape? I said, yeah, I've heard about the tape. I said, you know, we're starting to, you know, the, the, the independent Florida alligator, which is the student run paper was, was starting to, to be online at that time. And so we were reading, following the story. And all of a sudden um, he says to me, he goes, I got to tell you, he goes, I saw it at a party the other night. And he goes, it's repulsive. I haven't been able to sleep. I haven't been able to eat. It's disgusting what these guys did to this woman. I can't believe you know, no, none of these guys have been arrested or charged. And I just, I'm, I've just been sick to my stomach about it for, for days. Um, a few days after that, I talked to another friend again, I, 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 I profile these guys just to kind of show that like similar backgrounds, similar mentalities, similar mm. upbringing, not very different, like worlds of experience or perspective. So another friend calls me and says, did you hear about the tape? I said, yeah, I heard about the tape. I was just talking to our another, our other friend about, it. yeah. He's like, this lying sack of, you know, like this woman, they should lock her up and throw away the key for lying about what these guys did to her. She's a disgrace and bop, bop, bop. And I'm like, wait a second. How is it that these two guys, reasonable, educated dudes with similar upbringings, you know, similar life experience, watch the same objective video footage and totally disagree mm. about whether or not they had witnessed a consensual or non-consensual sex act? And I was like, 
this is wild. Like we, like maybe we should pursue this. So it was the perfect storm. It was those three fronts, Alfred's video conversation, my documentary thing, and then learning about this story all at the same time. We took leaves of absence from college and moved to Gainesville with just a few grand in the bank that we were able to just kind of raise from friends and family and moved into a month to month apartment and just started to pursue. We made it up as we went along. Uh, We were fans of, of documentaries, but had never, Made one before, mm. never took a class, never read a, really a book about it. And just went ahead and pursued it. That was in January of 2000. And I shit you not, in January of 2001, we had our world premiere at the Sundance Film Festival as, as at the time, the youngest wow. filmmakers in the history of that festival and the only ones at the time from Miami. So it was a whirlwind uh, kind of a turnaround on that. So, uh, yeah, I want to hear about this. Like, you moved to Gainesville. Now, are you... Are you part-time investigator, part-time journalist? I mean, what what is that? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, mean, I mean, you start off with you move to yeah. Gainesville. I mean, that's yeah. like talking about bad life point. decisions. Yeah. That's a good point. There, you know? That's a good point. Yeah. Um, you know, no, I mean, listen, we just, we just, I just started calling people and knocking, literally knocking on doors and writing snail mail, or if I could find email addresses, writing emails and, and, and oh, usually on AOL. Uh, at that time. Oh, wow. um, and so, yeah, we were just, just, just pounding the pavement. Mm-hmm. Um, like I said, making it up as, as we went along and, and, and just trying to find people who had been quoted in news stories who we knew had already been willing to go on the record. So you start there with the people who were really carrying the torch and, and making the story a story. Um, and, and so, and, and we just slowly, I, I came up with a, a, a tactic, let's say, um, we had, cause basically it was like, we were taking people's money. We had bought a camera. We had to come back. We couldn't come back empty handed. Mm-hmm. Right. So, and we knew because we had the actual videotape footage that, that the fraternity men had shot from that night, that there was B roll, that we had something right. Mm-hmm. There, there could, and so we had, I had this kind of like ABC plan. And if you picture ABC as concentric circles, we started with C, which were, People outside, you could talk to lawyers and experts, rape crisis people who could watch the footage and who could just analyze it. When I say lawyers, I mean lawyers who weren't involved in the case, but Mm -hmm. maybe who had some experience prosecuting or defending uh, uh, sexual assault cases. Um, That was sort of like the back. And then plan B was people who were in the community, maybe who were in the fraternity itself or who were in the Greek council or who were in the administration, who were sort of peripherally involved in the case. And then plan A, which was that inside, they were in the room where it happened. Mm-hmm. And there was three men and one woman who were in that room where the actual, where, 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 where the events later that night took place. So we were kind of, it was this way of like working our way into that room. And we wound up interviewing two of the four people who were in wow. that, in that room, the woman and one of the men, um, in addition to some of those B type characters who were, you know, a, a deans of, you know, deans of student services type of characters and people in the community, other fraternity brothers in the house, but who weren't in the room or necessarily aware of what was going on. Um, and we never had to resort to that, that C level, which were sort of periphery commentators and experts. We never had, when I say periphery, I'm sorry, just out, I should say outside objective um, uh, 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 folks, although we did get some rape crisis experts from within the community um, of Gainesville, one of whom had treated um, the woman. Uh, And so, uh, yeah, and so, I mean, we just, I don't know. I don't know what I knew about it or how to do it, but... um, 
And it was not helpful. I don't think that we were all that we were a team of, of three guys mm-hmm. that were making it. Uh, you know, um, uh, that would not happen today, and rightfully so. Uh, you know, uh, uh, I, I, we're, we're, we're fortunately, I think, a, a more diverse country and a more diverse industry, um, and 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 are open to to more voices telling stories from you know mm-hmm. from from their communities and their perspectives. Um, so. I think that that was a barrier to entry just in terms of access and trust, but that's really the key to, I mean, really, it's honestly, it's the secret to life is access, right? They say, mm-hmm. it's not what you know, it's who, you know, yeah. and we didn't know any, we didn't know anybody. We so, were just, we just moved to friggin' Gainesville and yeah. just started to write letters, knock on doors and, and, you know, and just see what we can, we could find. So, so what was the draw then? What was the point? What were you trying to get out of this? Because that is wild that you just decided to quit college and move to Gainesville. Like what were you hoping came out of all this? Yeah. It's a good question. I don't, and I don't know that I know the answer to that. I knew that we wanted to tell stories. I knew that, that, that we had this company, um, even through college and, and, and wanted to, 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 to build it, to make Mm -hmm. movies. I don't know. Uh, and, um, and we really wanted to, to do Florida, Florida fuckery is what we call our genre, mm-hmm. you know? And so we really wanted to do Floridiana and, and only in Florida and only in Miami kinds of, kinds of stories. Um, and I don't know that this, this was a Florida true crime story. I don't know that it was unique to Florida. It really didn't seem because this was, you know, kind of through the Duke yeah. lacrosse uh, uh, incident, yeah. which of course was not yeah. Florida, you know? So there was other incidents that, that made this hyper relevant, but not, necessarily unique obviously uh, geographically um but uh, god what do we hope to accomplish i mean i i can't tell you like oh we hope to go to the sundance film festival mm, with it because right. that's just not true i that was not on necessarily on i mean yeah, i was on our radar in terms of what are we going to do with this after we're done with it but i don't know that that was sort of the hope or the goal i think i think we just wanted to you know i i, I went to a, a school called new world school of the arts in downtown Miami, which was modeled after the high school for the performing arts in New York, which is what the, the high school in fame was mm-hmm. based on. And, and I, went to, I went to school with some insanely talented people. I'm talking about Oscar winners and, and Grammy winners and Emmy winners uh, and Tony winners. And so um, we had done a play called Rashomon based on the Akira Kurosawa movie when I was a senior in high school. And it's about a rape of a woman that's told from different perspectives and it's told by three different narrators and it's three completely diverging viewpoints. And then the fourth story is what actually happened, mm. which is like nothing really, or a mm. combination of the other three realities, you know, um, what do they say? There's, you know, three sides to every story, yours, right. mine, and the truth. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, 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 and, and so that really was inspiring to me, this idea that like you could have, I remember the whole point of this exercise was to shoot something on video. Right. right. And yet there was, this was a video about a video how video is supposed to tell objective reality and yet educated, reasonable people would watch the same footage and disagree. Right. That's what we wanted to, we just wanted to tell a story and we wanted to be insanely objective about it. Right. And we wanted people to watch it and to change their minds over the course of it. In fact, I wasn't done editing it. We edited on the first version ever of final cut, final cut 1.0. It was a nightmare. It was crazy glitchy and like it was wild. And so I wasn't done editing the documentary yet. But we had, but Sundance was waiting for our master. We hadn't shipped mm. it yet, and they didn't know who the hell we were, and so they didn't. They, they, didn't, they had no reason to trust that they would ever get our <laughs> ever get our <laughs> documentary. And we were almost a week away from our screening. We were the first movie to sell out all of our screenings. Wow. Like people just yeah. read the description in the mm. catalog, and we just 
sold out immediately. And like, it was the talk of the festival leading up to the festival and they had no movie. They had no master tape. Uh So Alfred finally comes to me and he says a line that became like a staple of ours um, all throughout our careers because in non-linear editing, um, you know, it's all on a computer. And so he's like, you don't have to finish, but you have to stop. And so I found great comfort in that, Mm -hmm. that when I came back, I would be able to continue and finish editing. So Mm -hmm. I finally spit the thing out. I was afraid it wasn't objective enough. I was afraid that, it showed a bias right. that was uh, that would be obvious to the audience. And so I'm not going to tell you what that was because I went a week later, I had to buy a parka and shit. I didn't know what a parka was. I'm a Miami <laughs> boy. You know what the hell? Yeah. We went to the Burlington Coat Factory, which is a terrible place. And like, Park City is a little room, different right. than South Beach for <laughs> sure. I was like, I was like, what am I going to do? I'm like, why are we leaving Miami in January and going to Utah? What the hell? <laughs> Like I ski, I water ski. I don't fucking ski. It's crazy. So um, I was like, this doesn't make any sense, you know, go to a film festival. Anyway, long story, even longer. um, You know, we go uh, to this festival and I sit in a theater and I watch it and I shit you not. I'm watching the documentary for the first time like that, you know, kind of stepping back slightly objective after being living it for a year and then being away from it for one week, Mm -hmm. finally. And I, completely changed my mind wow i thought the i thought the movie was arguably biased or making the case for the exact opposite of what i had thought we outputted the thing but yeah so so we got a lot of good reviews for that like so uh, the scotsman when we went to the edinburgh film festival which is like the the sundance of, of 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 scotland like they they said um that it was a triumph of objective reporting. They gave it like four star, whatever the highest rating was there. And that's really what we were going for is that people would, you know, would, would kind of struggle with what was, with what was the truth uh, here. And that was, that was the goal. And, and so we, we were on the front page of the New York post out of this little festival in Utah. And it was like the talk of the town. And you would literally go on main street in park city, Utah, and you could just eavesdrop at the next table. And they were arguing about the document. Yeah. It was amazing. Uh, how impossible so, is it Billy, to, to not be by, I mean, you're, you're listen, you're doing something, a documentary. How is, is it almost impossible not to have your own biases within? Listen, the, the, the definition of a documentary is the creative interpretation of reality. Right. Okay. It is not reality. Even if you're recording something, you know, you're doing like a follow doc, like hard knocks, right? This is just a year in the Mm -hmm. life. We're following them around. What you're, what you see is what you get, right? Not really, because for the first decision you're making is what is in the four corners of this frame. And that in and of, in and of itself is subjective. You're making a creative or, or otherwise decision. You're making a choice. A human being is making that choice. And then you go into an editing room. And of course mm-hmm. you have a zillion hours of footage that you're going to cut down into a 50 minute or one hour episode every week. That is a creative decision. What makes it, what doesn't make it is arguably displays a bias. So yeah, I mean, we all come to the table with our own life experience, with our own bias, with mm-hmm. our own ideas. Um, which is why I think it's, you know, it's important that there's a diversity of voices, voices yes. in filmmaking right. and storytelling and documentary mm-hmm. filmmaking, because I, you know, I, we've all lived different lives and we bring those experiences to the table uh, uh, with us. And so it's hard to just sort of shut that off. We had a, a sign. So every time someone came into wherever we were editing for a while, it was in my apartment in Miami and we had the, you know, our little uh, 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 Mac set up there, you know, and um, people would come in like, 
a family member would visit. My grandpa would come in. My mom would come over. A girlfriend of one of ours would come over. Anybody would walk in the room. We'd play 90 seconds of this documentary. The next thing you know, everybody would be screaming at each other. I mean, it was just like, it was, and, and Dave Sipkin, our partner, he took a piece of uh, a, blank, a blank paper and a Sharpie and he wrote, welcome to the argument. And he taped it over the, uh, <laughs> the editing set. Cause the second you walked in, it was going to be like mm. instant brawl. And it was honestly, and it was our, you know, I was studying poli sci at the university of Miami. I did. That was one of my majors when I ultimately graduated years later, um, always missed the great football eras. I like literally took a leave of absence for the Oh one team, you know, like, <laughs> ridiculous. um, and, and then returned to finish my degree in Oh three. It's like, Oh, you know, um, but like, um, we, uh, um, we kept each other honest. Mm -hmm. Like we, and to the at, at our office this day, it's just us yelling, you know, about mm -hmm. tweets or yelling about news or yelling about, uh, you know, an edit in our documentaries. Like we constantly play devil's advocate. And that's why, listen, that's, it's a team. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a, it is a team effort. And mm -hmm. to have guys who are not yes men, but are <laughs> very much no men mm -hmm. <laughs> surrounding you, just like constantly going like, listen, if you put this video footage in, you have to put this video footage in to kind of counterbalance <laughs> yeah, it. Right. And if you put this line from, from Lisa, you have to put in this line from Tony, right. you know, to, and so we just kept, you know, welcome to the argument. Yeah. And yeah. that's, that's another thing I'm fascinated by, you know, that, that's a good question behind the scenes of, you know, how you, you know, keep your bias out of it. The other thing I'm fascinated by is, is do you enjoy the things that you create? Because, you know, we watch the you and we watch broke and they're phenomenal documentaries, or, you know, another, you know, somebody makes this phenomenal movie. Like, I'm always intrigued by does the director, does the producer, can they even appreciate it as much as the consumer does? You know, there's some of them that I can never watch again. Mm. Um, and then there are some that, like, if I'll be flipping through the channel and they'll be on, I'll find myself kind of uh, absorbed in it. In the case of 30 for 30, I think we invented this whole, you know, swaggerlicious kind of subgenre of, like, of, like, profoundly cool and unapologetic athletes, you know, yeah. talking about their talking about the good old battle days and the battle good old days. And, and, um, and so I'll be watching some of I be and I'm like, did I direct this? I'm like, I'm confused. Cause like, this feels like us, but, uh, but it's not us. And, and it, it makes me happy that, you know, uh, 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 but you know, what do they, what do they say? Uh, you know, the, 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 greatest form of flattery, you know, is, uh, is, you know, is copying, you know, is ripping somebody off, you know? Um, but like, it's the stuff that, because you have an idea in your head, right? You have mm -hmm. a vision for something. And then sometimes it turns out as, as you know, the way you hoped and as good as you hoped. Sometimes it even exceeds mm -hmm. your expectations. And then sometimes they fall off the mark and you're kind of, you're kind mm -hmm. of disappointed. Uh, some of our most popular stuff, like I, I dig mm -hmm. a lot. Um, there's some of our obscure stuff that I probably like a little bit more, but that's always, I feel like that's always the case, right? Yeah, you know, it's like, yeah. it's like you, you know, every artist like digs the B, you know, the B sides, you know, the, the deep cuts, you mm -hmm. know, uh, but like, but the, we, but one of our most popular ones, and you've already mentioned it, uh, I, I can't, I can't watch. I just can't watch. Mm -hmm. Um, and it, and it's, and it's like not only insanely popular, but insanely iconic. And like, it's an evergreen title. It comes up all the time, which I'm terribly grateful for. But that's the thing. Listen, you know, documentaries are like, they're, they're like kids. You have your favorite, but you just don't tell anybody else which <laughs> yeah. one that is, yeah. you know? And, and then, and then also though, you do your best with it. You know, limitations breed creativity. So you have a budget, you have a schedule, you have access, you don't have access, you do the best you can. 
and then you send it out into the world and you just you, you just hope mm-hmm. for the best and 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 hope you know they sink or swim on their own merits at that point and there's nothing you can really do about it and honest to god no one gives a shit what I think, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it just, right. and, and it doesn't, and it doesn't matter what, what I think it only matters what the audience yeah. thinks. And so if you, if you, you know, if you embrace, I'll never forget. I remember when in back in the nineties, someone asked the artist seal, you know, the artist, yeah. Seal, yeah. the singer uh-huh. of the summer. So seal didn't publish his lyrics in his liner notes. Remember liner mm, notes? Yeah. Remember those things? Yeah. SUVs? yeah. So he didn't do that. And he said, it doesn't matter what I'm singing. It only matters what you hear. And so whatever you think I'm saying and whatever it means to you, you know, like I'm doing my thing, but you, the the listener has to internalize and, and interpret and feel. And so I kind of feel this, it's kind of like, ah, whatever, like, you know, I did my, I did my best. I'm not happy with how it turned out or I did my, I did my best and I love it. And maybe nobody else loves it (laughs) or I did I did my best and I didn't like it. Or maybe for some reason beyond my control or maybe in my control, I couldn't do my best, but here it is. And people love it. And I can't, you know, so it's just like, you can't, there's no accounting for, uh, for taste, yeah. you know. <laughs> I want to take another quick break. And speaking of breaks, I want to take, thank our sponsor, Sleep Number, who gives you the best break of every single day of your life, which is sleep. Mm. And what they're doing with their technology and their mattresses is second to none. They have taken the mattress game and put it on steroids. Yeah, They check your heart rate. Your, your circadian rhythm. They're doing all these different things to test you while you're sleeping to make sure that it's custom and that every single night is the most restorative, restful sleep that you're ever going to get. It's no accident that Sleep Number is the official sleep partner of the NFL. And because NFL athletes are at the top when it comes to recovery, when it comes to taking care of your body, and nothing is more important than sleep. We've talked about it on the show multiple times, making sure you take care of your sleep. And there's a reason that Dak Prescott sleeps on one every single Mm -hmm. night. And there's a reason that his career has blossomed the way that it has. So make sure either you go online, sleepnumber.com, you go into a local store, they're going to walk you through it. You're going to experience the entire process of understanding what your sleep score is or what your sleep number is. And then ultimately showing you how to achieve the highest sleep score uh, because that's what's important is how you actually sleep and how you recover so that you can tackle the day with everything that you have. It's the VIP experience that we're all looking for. That's right. Sleepnumber.com. Like Tyler said, go get yourself to a local store and get yourself that VIP experience. Now back to the episode. I want to go back to your first documentary and and the Gainesville story about the, the sexual assault or whatever it may be. So, What's crazy to me, and we talk about this all the time, and, and, and maybe I am naive, and I'm just going to speak for myself. I'm starving for like a news source, right, that, that really truly is objective. And it sounds like you and your partners for that because of different personalities, different beliefs, maybe the content helped with it. But you really truly took a perspective of, hey, we are, are going to be objective about this. You were sitting in on interviews. So you actually looked in the eyes of the mm-hmm. potential victim and the potential, uh, you know, a criminal aggressor, whatever. So you're looking at them. There has to be some sort of opinion that you probably gained in those conversations. I'm assuming that it was, it would be hard to walk out of all of those, all of the information that you were to gather because you couldn't put all the information into one documentary, all of the information, the interviews, the conversations that you had, the footage that you saw, and not had an opinion, but you were then still able to put out a product 
that for the most part was completely objective and let the viewer make their own decision. Listen, I, I have a very specific perspective in my life and in my ideology and in my mm. politics. It has evolved over the course of my life. Make no mistake uh, about it. Um, some may some may argue has devolved over the course of uh, <laughs> over the course of my of my enlightening, um, or enlightenment or lack thereof. But but I, I try to, get, and that affects my choice of stories. But it doesn't affect how I tell a story. Mm-hmm. If you follow, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, meaning there might be stories I don't. I just choose not to tell because of some beliefs that I may have. Um, but once I take on a project, I try not to, I try to remove my bias and, 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 mm-hmm. and my ideology from the project itself. So when people say, Oh, well, I know your politics because you, because of, of your perspective, this like, no, no, that story is that story. And I told it objectively and I told it accurately. I chose to tell that story, perhaps, you know, perhaps because of, of my perspective on the world and, 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 and life and politics. But, but the story itself um, should be, uh, we do our best to make it, uh, you know, as objective as possible. And so I certainly have opinions, but I think it was more compelling. I think what I learned about it is this frightening gray area where, for example, if, and I would do a poll festival what film festival audiences with this documentary i would say listen how many of you by show of hands believe that there was physical or sexual activity that occurred that night on video or not that lisa did not want to happen and a significant number of people i'd say a majority of the audience at least two-thirds would would raise their hand uh, and then I'd say, now, how many of you, if you were on a jury, would vote to convict this man? But because that's rape. What you just described yeah, yeah. Is, mm-hmm. is rape or is mm-hmm. sexual assault. How many of you would, would vote to convict him, find him guilty? Less than a third, really? maybe, of the audience. So what I came to understand, was, and I came to understand why women are afraid to come forward, um, why, why rape might be the most often uh, a committed and least reported crime in probably the history of humanity. Um, and I came to understand the complexities in making a legal case versus understanding or making people believe what may have occurred. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and, and the difference between perhaps even truth and a conviction, for example, you know, right. um, or proving a case beyond a reasonable doubt. And the idea that, um, that perhaps because Lisa did not articulate herself verbally in such a way that people were less inclined to convict, but they did believe her. And, and, and it really gave me a lot of, listen, I, 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 at the time I had a, a girlfriend in college. I was in college. She was in college. It was a long distance. We we're both in Florida schools, but not, you know, but hundreds of miles away from each other. And I didn't sleep nights. Like I was, I was scared. You know, I, I learned about the, the ubiquity of acquaintance rape, you know, and it wasn't just kind of like stranger in a bushes with a ski mask on. It was much more likely to happen in a party right. situation amongst people. And I like, listen, I was scared. I was scared. Man. Yeah. I like, I like for, for my, for my girlfriend, for my female friends, yeah. for my, you know, I, I was scared. Um, and, and, uh, but, but perhaps I, my thinking was not, not aligned with, with the majority of the audience. Yeah. So what, where's that line, right? Because you're doing something that you obviously love doing. 
And it would, it, it seems like, okay, hey, you pick the stories because there's something that draws you to it. But then, but then you're doing something. What is it that you love more, like making it or the final result of it? Well, I guess when I stop, when, <laughs> when I I'm no done, enjoy the process of <laughs> yeah. making it, I need mm. to stop. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I need to stop making yeah. them. Um, so then how do you go through that process though? How do you go through the process of making it, but then removing will, your sorry, own I'm, self? Yeah, I'm sorry. I, but I do, but listen, the, the best part of it or the fruits of our labor are to bring it to an audience. Mm -hmm. I mean that like, yeah, if you're asking like, yeah, my, my, my favorite part. Yeah. I, I was just sort of getting that if I didn't enjoy the process, because mm, yeah. I spend more time in the process <laughs> right, right. than I spend, right. you know, premiering a movie, yeah. right? I mean, you I mean, your fear it's over. Netflix mm -hmm. turns, flicks a switch. It's on in 160 countries and 30 languages and then it's over. Yeah. But what's fun about that, of course, is seeing the audience react for better or worse. I read all, I don't know people who go, Oh, I don't read. I don't read my review. I don't read reviews. Horseshit. I read, I read all the reviews and I read the bad ones at least twice because those mm. are the ones you can learn something mm. uh, from. And, and so um, I enjoy that part of it. What do we get right? What do we get wrong? You know, what are people connecting with? It's not always what we expect when, when we're making it. And sometimes it is. It lets us know where our instincts are, you know, if we're on or off. I mean, it's like, it's like that's like not watching a, a game tape. Right. You know, yeah. uh, to me, it's not just watching the final product. It's seeing how people react. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's listening to the post game show, yeah. listen to the callers, listen to the callers yeah. call in, you know, like getting that, getting that real time reaction from people who might not know what the hell they're talking about or people who yeah. might know what they're talking about, but this is who you do it for. Yeah. You do. I don't, I don't do this for myself. I don't do this just because I like making documentaries or because I like the, pro I, again, if I didn't enjoy the process, I need to stop. Yeah. doing it. And there's some projects are more enjoyable than others. Some are outright hard um, and not, and not in, in the least bit enjoyable, let alone entirely. Um, but the reality is that, that ultimately, you know, a lot of, for years, you had mentioned that we are accurately that in the last decade or so, really since cocaine Cowboys came out 15, exactly 15 years ago, there has been an incredible renaissance of nonfiction filmmaking. I think that, ex that helps with the explosion of mm -hmm. the number of platforms and outlets for it. It's cheaper content to produce yeah, than right. scripted. So every single network and platform and streaming service really pushes it. Um, and so, <laughs> excuse me. Um, and so uh, 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 with that um, comes the opportunity to make some fun stuff. It comes an opportunity to make some not so fun, <laughs> some not some fun stuff, but it, 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 there is ultimately an audience for a while. Indie film and, and nonfiction filmmaking was like the proverbial tree falling in a forest. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like if there's, if there's nobody around, does it make a sound, yeah. mm -hmm. you know, does it have, an it's impact? not on PBS. Um, it doesn't exist. Yeah. Yeah. We, 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 you know, we make, we make well, like how, what was it like watching those football games with nobody or those basketball right, yeah. games right. with nobody in the crowd? Like yeah. it was fucking weird. It yeah. was awkward. <laughs> like it, it just didn't feel right, you know? And, and so, and well, I mean, it was the same for the Marlins, but you know, it's no difference. No COVID, it's the same. Yeah. Crickets, crickets, you know, the iguana running around, you know, that's it, you know? um, but like, um, you know, but like, uh, but for, you know, most other teams, it was unusual. Like, and so, so again, like we do it for an audience. Why I love working for Netflix, you know, because like, first of all, they're incredibly good at what they do, both creatively and technologically and marketing wise, just, you know, pushing the content out to the largest possible audience. But like, you get that 
man, if you're looking, you know, mm-hmm. if you if you get those endorphins going mm-hmm. from uh, you know from 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 Twitter mentions or people talking about your shit for better. I mean, like it, it is, it is exciting to see suddenly people in 30 languages on Twitter talking about yeah. a documentary, like the yeah. Kings of Miami, which we spent 12 years of our lives working on. That's, that's really what you do. You do it so somebody will see it. Yeah. You know? yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, right. so someone will hopefully appreciate it. So Billy walk us through, I know we're going to run up the time up here, you know, we're, we're pressing on time, but run us through how you, the creative, mentality of how you decide on what documentary you want to pursue is that uh you your team get together or is it something that you guys someone's bringing this to you how does that work i think some of the best of our stuff has been the stuff that was self-generated or Mm -hmm. that we developed in-house meaning you know that was our idea and something that we kind of brought out to the market and eventually brought to fruition um yeah people do it's cool now even though we're kind of way off the kind of off the grid here. Um, you know, not New York or, or LA. And that was a commitment that we made. You no, know, we did 50 or 60 interviews in five days at Sundance, wow. um, in January of 2001, because everybody wanted to talk about our doc. It was amazing. And, um, the last interview, I'm sorry, the last question of every interview was always the same. They said, now that you've made it right, you've made mm-hmm. a big splash at the most important indie film festival in the world, or in, certainly in the United States, where are you go? What's your next move? You guys going to New York? You're going to LA? And as obvious as it was that we would go to New York or LA, it was just as obvious to us that we were going to come home to Miami. Um, first of all, uh, I mean, home is where you go when you're done with other shit. That's why they call it home. Um, and second, we didn't really know what we were going to do. We had immersed ourselves in this doc for so long that we were the idiots that that didn't come to the table with a pitch. Like we didn't have our next project yet because <laughs> yeah. we were still, I told you I hadn't even finished editing this one. Mm-hmm. I wanted to go home and finish it. So, um, and third, we want to be three more schmucks peddling our wares in New York or LA. Yeah. We wanted to build a brand just like a sports franchise yeah, does right. around community, around a geography, around a mentality and a set of stories and characters that was unique to where we grew up and it had been done in, in film. It had been done in, certainly in, 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 not in, in, we have a, a rich literary tradition, but no one in nonfiction filmmaking had really tapped this extraordinary natural resource of characters and stories that we have in Florida and specifically South Florida. So we looked to make our, what we called our Miami calling card. So we would be known as the Miami guys, you know, like so that maybe they wouldn't know Billy or Alfred or David or Tour, the name of our company. But they would go, oh, those are the Miami guys. Right. And so that's when we set out to make Cocaine Cowboys. We're like, you know, raw deal, a question of consent, which was our Sundance stop, was a Florida true crime story. But it was not a Miami calling card. Mm-hmm. And that's why we chose to make Cocaine Cowboys. We chose it as our as our brand builder that was our big that was our uh, that was our all chips right. <laughs> in, yeah. in one basket you know um uh, uh hail mary was like we're gonna do this documentary about the drug boom in miami when we grew up in the 80s 70s into the 80s um and this is going to be our miami calling card and we could get meetings with everybody because of the sundance thing mm. so we went out and pitched it but in those days fuck, there was like maybe eight documentary distributors mm. and they were the gatekeepers and if you could not convince one of those people you were done oh, your wow. doc was done mm. and we could not nobody wanted to make this documentary i gotta tell you <laughs> really? nobody got it nobody understood 
Um, and I mean, so we just went out like we, uh, and, and yeah, nobody, no, nobody wanted to make cocaine. That's out. insane. Cause no, that, so. it's like, it has everything. It has, it has drugs, sex, violence. Like it literally like everything that viewers the want to watch. Yes. Yeah. I mean, everything that you want <laughs> is like right there. But, yeah. And as flashy and loud as it you could know, be. You know what it is? What it is, is, is that we grew up in Miami. I don't call it the real world, but it's kind of like, it's like away from Hollywood is like a vacuum of ideas. Mm -hmm. Nobody lives in reality. Um, and to be honest, Miami, we don't have reality. We have realty, but it's, but it's a hustle, <laughs> but it's a, but it's a hustle that's interesting. And we understand it like mm -hmm. normal people uh, do <clears throat> because we're a hustle town uh -huh. and we subsist from hustle to hustle. We have no indigenous industry. You know, we're a Ponzi scheme. We rely on outside <laughs> revenue on new money and new idiots coming into town mm -hmm. and buying, you know, underwater condos or, or, you know, you know, buying stupid cars or whatever. Um, and it's all good. Um, that's how we subsist. But like, you know, we um, we knew that there, we thought also because nostalgia seems to run in these 20 year cycles. And we knew that like, I don't know, shit seemed to be coming back around to Miami in the 80s again. Vice City, remember Grand mm -hmm. Theft Auto? Oh, was yeah. the biggest selling video mm -hmm. game of the time. Miami Vice was just coming out on DVD. Scarface had its 20th anniversary release with Def Jam Records. It was like, that was huge. Um, and you just you would watch one episode of Cribs on yeah. MTV. Jeez. And you'd know, yeah. I'll never forget, I think it was Trick, Trick Daddy <laughs> in his house in like Miramar. He had these blinds, right? These like, um, these vertical blinds that were open. And he goes, check this out. And he closes them, and it's a Scarface poster, right? They, they <laughs> fucking they close, and it was like a Scarface poster that had been like glued to the blinds, and they're like exacto <laughs> knives, like out, you know, like that. Right. And it was hilarious. So it would, it would close and reveal it, and you just had to know that was the top DVD on the pile, you yeah. know, like always. And so we just thought that this we were hitting on a zeitgeisty kind of a thing. Nobody, listen. How else to explain, gentlemen, in our lifetimes? Two Robin Hood movies the same year. Two Volcano movies the same year. Two Truman Capote movies the same year. Two Asteroid Hurling Towards the Earth yeah. movies in the same year. Two Friends with Benefits movies in the same year. I mean, if you think about like, like, because what happens is that. a studio green lights a Volcano movie and suddenly a studio, the other studios go, Volcanoes are hot. Uh -huh. Volcanoes <laughs> are hot. What, and so some studio across town goes and I was like, don't we have a, fucking volcano script and they, they, fucking, they blow the dust off and they go like now we're, we're making volcano movies and like turns out nobody wanted to see a volcano movie that yeah. year you know but like but like that's the thing is that like it's a vacuum of us so when someone comes in and like no no i think miami drugs 80s is gonna be hot they're like for who right. and then we and then we made the damn thing we just went out and made it we got investors like we did the first time went out and made the damn thing and then it blew up in the bootleg market. <laughs> 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 that was the first place it was discovered. I mean, it was some real hip hop entrepreneurship, and a lot of people thought that we bootlegged it ourselves, mm. which is what which is what smart artists do. But yeah. we did not. We did not do that. The goal is the goal always was in those days to sell the first spindles mm -hmm. of the C, of the DVDRs to the bootleg guys, and then they would start duplicating yeah. it. So at least you got paid on that first spindle or two. Right, but. We, we got a bootleg right out from under us. It was at the flea, at the Carol, Mart, Carol City Flea Market. It was uh, at every barber shop. It was all over the damn town. And uh, we didn't know what to do about it because a guy, a guy literally worked in our office, Evan. He comes back from, from um, the, the, the barber shop in Miami Gardens and goes, I walked in the barber shop. Cooking Cowboys had premiered at the Tribeca Film Festival in 06. We did a deal with um, 
Mark Cuban's company, uh, Magnolia, to distribute mm. it. And it was coming out in like October. This is summer of 06. Wow. And the shit was everywhere on DVDR. I mean, like, it was the flea at the barbershop. <laughs> Strip club bathrooms, Walmart parking lots. Was it Cologne? God, Co- Cocaine Cowboys DVD. Everywhere your bootleg guy was, Cocaine Cowboys was hot. And they and they created, it was such a hot seller. They found some MSNBC documentary about killing Pablo, about the book Killing Pablo Escobar. Yeah. And they labeled that shit Cocaine Cowboys 2 on the bootleg. <laughs> so that they could sell Boga, they could sell oh. two, you know, anybody coming in. They, they were mislabeling. Wow. I don't want to wait for the sequel. Cowboys. Don't worry about it. it I got you. By the way, that's why we made a sequel was because they were bootleg. They were making up. They were stealing other shit, making a sequel. So listen, I, I, every, so we didn't know what to do. That was back in the day when like music artists were like suing Napster, yeah. right? And suing, yeah. and suing yeah. people for downloading. And I'm like, I'm like, what are we going to sue our fans? Yeah, like right. people don't bootleg shit. They hate, they bootleg shit. They like, so like, right. these are our fans. So we were making a documentary about the opening of a South beach nightclub, like a follow doc, like a reality type thing where we're following these guys. So we had crews out the field every day. So I said, you know what? YouTube had just launched the year before in 05. I said, let's do a, a YouTube series of shorts called the streets of Miami, the cocaine cowboys phenomenon. And so we went to the barbershop, we went to the bootleg guys and we started doing these short documentaries where people were just talking about how they heard about it, what their favorite scenes were. We intercut it with footage from the docs. The next thing you know, we hear from Pitbull, Trick Daddy, Nori, DJ Khaled, Cool and Dre, all these guys who were like, Hey, I want to do my own streets of Miami thing because mm. I discovered this shit and put all my friends on it. And I want everybody to know that I'm a, a CCOG and I, I turned like I started go, I started making it go viral. This is pre viral. This is DVDR viral, you know, <laughs> physical media viral. And so we started to get basically celebrity endorsed infomercial ads wow. for the documentary. And then when it finally came out legit on DVD in 07, it blew up Netflix and Amazon. This was like the last gasp of, of DVD sales of physical media. Netflix and Amazon doubled their order of DVDs on day one. They could not keep up with the demand. And for like the first almost year, this is unprecedented because usually, you know, like the big business comes right yeah. out of the gate, right? right? Up. Opening yep. week, right? Every month we sold more DVDs than the month before it for almost the first 12 months. It oh, just got, oh it gosh. got bigger and bigger. And right. what we discovered was not only, was it kind of viral in terms of reputation, but um, people who had bought the bootleg wanted to keep it real and get the real shit with the real mm. art and have the, they didn't want a bootleg on their shelf. They wanted to yeah. go right next to Scarface with <laughs> the artwork. Yeah, and right. yeah, I mean, it was amazing. And so just Cocaine Cowboys just took off. And then we became not the Miami guys per se, but the Cocaine Cowboys guys. Yeah. And that became our Miami calling card. And that is how we pitched the U. Um, mm. Because let's be honest, it's, basically just cocaine cowboys. I was just going to say, <laughs> I mean, we just, we use 70% of the same footage. So listen, it's the I same mean, boosters. I mean, the guys we interviewed in this are the same boosters for Miami. I so mean, come on. I mean, yeah, yeah. Same, same white lines on the field. But you know, I mean, I've been, but honestly, like I, we, we're, we're, we're not one, one hit wonders, but we may be one trick ponies. Uh, you know, we, kind of, we kind of do, there's kind of a formula that ain't broke. So we haven't really fixed it. I mean, let's yeah. be real. We did two you documentaries. You've done the, uh-huh. the first and only sequel, I think in the history of 30 for 30, although, uh, although broke two is certainly worth, would be a worthy follow-up. Mm-hmm. We've done four cocaine Cowboys titles and we're working on a second dog fight uh, documentary mm. that follows up on our backyard fighting uh, a story out of Southwest uh, Miami Dade, out of uh, out of West Perrine, where where Kimbo came out. I was just saying, uh, Kimbo so, slice, yeah, yeah. So 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 Doc franchises are 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 
are a thing. And, and like I said, I mean, the fourth Cocaine Cowboys title, which is what Kings of Miami is on Netflix now. Mm. Um, you know, so, so, but that is how we pitched the U. Right. Um, you know, when, when people sat around and, 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 or the executives of ESPN were, were like, okay, well, what does this look like and feel like and sound like? We're like, go to your local flea market <laughs> yeah. and pick up the right. Cowboys right. and you'll, you'll see exactly, yeah. exactly. Go to the flea and you'll see exactly what this, uh, what this is You, you know what like. I love about your docs, though, man, is that the ethnicity of I mean, what you bring in. You're, like you're telling yes. stories of just, you know, it's not a white America. It is a it's stories about inner city folks. It's stories about the drug game. It's so, you know, stories that mo- a lot of people live in these bubbles don't want don't mm-hmm. want to see or haven't heard or whatnot. And you're introducing these films to people who are like holy shit this is some this is this really exists and that's the reality of you know the the experiences that you've had in miami listen when i say the the miami today is the america of tomorrow i mean that really includes um you know this this third world economy that we have down here um uh, the united uh way does this report every year called the alice report which is the asset limited income constrained employed report. And what that means is what percentage of people in your community are employed, but Mm -hmm. living either Mm -hmm. at or below the poverty poverty letter level or cannot afford Mm -hmm. to live in the community that they're living in. Miami-Dade County is off the charts. We are, we have nearly 60% of the people who live and work at least one job, if not two or three, Mm. cannot afford to live in Miami-Dade County, cannot afford because of the the, the, the cost of living. And that is that is happening first and worst here in Miami-Dade, but that is happening all around uh, this country. And so it is not, you know, other than those, you know, sort of 10 blocks of South Beach that everybody knows about, um, there is not a lot of, of, of glitz and glamour here. There is right. a lot more, more have-nots uh, than haves, and that's true of the, the entire country. Mm-hmm. And, and I think, you know, the, the American dream dies here first uh, in Miami. Um, it is a place of extraordinary affluence and it is a, it is a place of debilitating uh, poverty, which mm-hmm. is the reality for most uh, for most mm-hmm. people who who live here yeah. is a system and a government that does not work for them mm-hmm. and that does not represent them and that does not function in any meaningful way uh, uh, for them. And, and, and I I feel like, again, you know. I probably don't direct the U if we may, if we make the U today. And I think that that's a good thing. I think that that's the right thing. Um, I'm proud that we have been able to start conversations and maybe make documentaries that perhaps filmmakers of a different gender or a different color could not have made mm-hmm. 10, 15, 20 years ago. But I say we tell stories about Miamians. Um, we don't tell stories. I don't look at it as black or white. Mm-hmm. It's, easy for me to say, but, you know, or, or in any gendered way or racial way, I say, these are stories of Miami. And we look to create a platform and an, uh, an opportunity to amplify those stories about our fellow uh, Miamians, regardless or irregardless, as we say in Miami, because we're illiterate. You're, I use it here ironically, you know, <laughs> uh, but you're, you know, we're, we're Miamians. I look at it as a collective experience, you know, yeah. and, and shining a spotlight, I've hoped on the tribalism of it, I would hope that, that sort of hanging a lantern on your problems would help acknowledge that there's a problem and, be, and bring people together. But most importantly, and this is my, uh, my, my, my new, one of my New Year's resolutions was that 2021 would be the first year that we produce a documentary that I do not direct mm. and that we hear from 
a woman or a person of color or a transgender filmmaker or something where we have created now a platform for ourselves that we can now bring mm-hmm. more people mm-hmm. more people aboard and amplify their voices and their perspectives and um and we're doing it for the first time this i can't talk about unfortunately sure. the projects plural yet but we're doing it and 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 um you know and, and i like i i often think about also though what what um uh, Denzel Washington says, which is that it, it, it is color. I'm sorry. It is culture, not color per mm-hmm. se. And that's important for me too. When we're telling stories, uh, you know, about, um, I, I don't like the, you, for example, or some of these other stories that I can't talk about that we're working on are not just about being black in America. They're about being black in Miami. Mm-hmm. And so I, we're looking for filmmakers who can speak to that specifically, not just the conversation of, we need storytellers or a filmmaker of color, but like, but the experience, but having respect for the, the tribe, for the yeah. experience, for the flag, for the uniqueness of the experience of growing up black in Miami. It's different. We were the Jim Crow South. Right. It was different. Mm-hmm. I, I'm obviously there are commonalities and similarities growing, growing, growing up black in any city, major city in America, but Miami is unique. And so those are, the, that is the life experience and the person. So it's, it's not just color, it's culture. And right. you want someone who understands that culture, because being from Miami is is a unique experience. And I think there's a lot to teach people who are not from Miami right. um, about what we have lived through and gone through in Miami, because the Miami of today uh, is the America of tomorrow. And what, what I feel we've proven with our work is that or the, the, the proof of concept has been that these aren't just provincial documentaries that are going to be on your local PBS right. station, but that there is an extraordinary amount of interest mm. in Miami as a brand all over the world. I'll tell you a quick, funny story. Um, so I have to do a project years ago, hasn't come out, um, where I need to talk to a Colombian drug money launderer. And I need to call him up on the phone. He's got a burner phone. Or, I'm sorry, he was going to call me <laughs> from a burner phone. So I had to know, we had to set it up because I, who picks up an unknown number? I mean, right. nobody picks up an unknown number. <laughs> so I had to know, shit, this is the guy I got to pick it up, right? So I need to convince him that we'll fly him to Miami and we'll put him on camera, silhouetted, you know, anonymous. You know, we'll we'll make his voice robotic. We'll you know, we'll silhouette him with a uh, you know a bright white uh, uh, background and everything, and you, you won't see his features or hear his his normal voice. So I need to convince him to trust me, create some common ground. Like this is here's some real behind the scenes mm-hmm. shit, you know. Like a guy, I'm not, and this is presumed. So we're just on the phone, and so I'm like, I'm introducing myself. My name is Billy Corbin, and I totally. I'm going to be honest. I stereotype it, right? Uh, he's a Colombian drug money launder- launderer. So what do I lead with? I directed Cocaine Cowboys, yeah, well, yeah. right? I'm, I'm, total, I'm totally profiled. Right. Let's yeah. be real, right? Totally profiled. The guy just sort of like, huh? Okay. And just keeps talking. Like, like nothing. I don't even know that he vocalized. I don't right. even know that there was an uh or a grunt or a meh. <laughs> he might have just been taking a bump. I don't know. But, he just, but like, like little to no reaction. vocal intonation doesn't change. He gets no warmer toward me. He doesn't open up. And I'm just like, all right, I kind of like pitch my best, you know, you know, shot my shot there, you know, and like cocaine cowboys, right? Like, and and nothing. And we're just talking. I want to talk to you about this and that. Nothing from this guy. Mm. And I'm not convincing him at all to trust me, to get on a plane, to go on camera for me. So he says to me, what was your name again? I said, Billy Corbin. He goes, Billy Corbin. He goes, did you direct the you? (laughs) 
Um, and I'm thinking, what the fuck? Like, for this guy, for this guy, football, soccer. Right? Like, what am I? Like, what does he know about American football? What? And he and I said, yes, I did. He goes, love that. He says, I'm a huge Michael Irvin fan from Dallas and from UM and Jimmy Johnson, and I love those guys. And I like those. He goes, I recognize. He goes, because they always say, oh, the U directed by. That's the thing, ESPN in 30 they fetishize the directors, right? Like, we have a whole team, this whole team effort, this whole, you know, and, and so, like, they made us, like, oh, directed, but, like, one person made this document. So, like, and the benefit of that, though, was that this guy knew my name from 30 for 30, oh, wow. and it turns out, he goes, I love the, I, I will do whatever you want. I will come to Miami. I will so, I'm the idiot who fucking, <laughs> I had the wrong, I, I, led, I led off with the wrong title. I totally uh, profiled this guy, which really, again, opened my my mind to like oh you know this this shit travels like, yeah. and, and people all over the world love this shit you know yeah. so oh that's good man that's well, awesome. your, your love for miami it comes out in all your documentaries and your uh -huh. work is just we, we've thoroughly enjoyed everything that you put out man we, we just hope that that continues obviously and and look forward to your future projects that you said you can't talk about our last question before we let you go here and this goes more back to your journey than anything but i'm just curious what, what you would say to yourself if you could go back to any point in your life and tell yourself one thing, doesn't necessarily mean you go change anything, but if you could just go back and tell yourself one thing, where do you go and what do you tell yourself? Um, I go back maybe about 10, 15 years ago, and I, I tell myself to buy Bitcoin. <laughs> <laughs> just on a post-it right by my computer. Buy Bitcoin. Buy a lot of it. That'd, be, lot. Very, yeah. that'd be a very no, smart listen, thing to no, do. I would, no, I, I, no I, I, I probably wouldn't do that, but I would say buy Netflix and buy Apple. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Is, is, definitely, is definitely what I would uh, what I would tell myself uh, for sure. That's very funny. I've never been that, you know, um, you know, but I, but what I, what I, what I, I want to do actually uh, right now, tell my present day self moving forward is, um, uh, adapt boys will be boys by Jeff Perlman into a documentary miniseries. Mm. That's what mm. I would, that's what yeah. I would tell myself. Yeah. Jeff's good friend. No, I know Jeff. Well, no, Jeff. Yeah, well. That's what I would, I love Jeff. Yeah. Very talented guy and, and a gifted author and a great guy. And that would be, that's a, that's a, that's a bucket list. Mm. Uh, project right there. I love yeah. that answer. Because that, yeah. that to me, that to me, is the sequel to the U. Yes. Yeah. You know, yeah. like like yeah, the U part two does sort of the continuation of the dynasty, but that's a whole new generation. I mean, that's yeah. ten years practically later from the the U part. Yeah. I mean, the last you know ninety one championship to the to the two thousand one championship, and so and I would argue the two thousand two uh, championship uh, <laughs> if you don't live in Ohio. Uh, like, you know. Um, but like, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm actually waiting for a yellow flag to, to come <laughs> yeah. over my shoulder. But like, um, but like, but no, but like, but that to me, you know, is I mean, geographically, yeah. yes. is is this? You know, you move on, you follow Michael, and right, you right, follow yeah. Jimmy mm -hmm. to Dallas, and that is really where the U lives on. Yes. Uh, yeah. that, so, so to me, that's like a no brainer. Yeah. Well, yeah. if you need or, Darren or, in that, or a, or a or a no, or a no septum. <laughs> <laughs> I'm bringing the Florida. Oh, yeah, come on, oh, it is. It's, it's, it's good. Great, man. It's good. It's good. I, I, I skipped my 305 cafecito break, so I'm a little out of <laughs> <laughs> a little off my, a little off my game. Oh man, this was fun. I'd love to see you on your game because this was yeah, this was, was awesome, man. This yeah. was fun. This yeah, is a lot was. of fun. Yeah. 
Well, uh, hey, let me let me uh, let me hit up the White House and I'll get back. Oh, yeah, come on, hey, come hey, on. Hey, you're gonna have Darren, to get, no you're comment. Gonna, you're gonna have to get 88 on that one for <laughs> sure. He, and he might, you know what, Billy, you may be the only one that can bring it out of him. Yeah, because he he uh, has not. You know, there there's a lot of us that you know that story is that it's. Just well, anyways, at some point, no, no, I didn't have that conversation. You, I, will tell you, I will tell you when he gets going, he is one of the greatest oh, storytellers, storytellers oh, the yes. best motive, the best yes. motivational mm-hmm. speaker. Yeah. Yes. The, I mean, the man gets your blood to just another yeah. level of existence. Right. And I, I got to tell you, I had the he was the last interview we were able to get for the U Part One. Mm-hmm. I mean, like we held a space for him, you know, yeah. like in the right. running time um, for him, and I flew out to L.A. He was doing his radio show there. We got a studio like in someone right uh, where ESPN had those studios in the Staples yeah, Center. Yeah, you know, yeah. They were doing, yep. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were doing the West Coast, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, late nights. And so, um, uh, Sports Center rather. And so, um, we set up basically, he comes in like literally like a fucking hurricane, just like yeah. mm-hmm. spinning around like a Tasmanian devil, like right? right. just fucking spinning around. And like, we all just like, Nobody knew what hit us, right? Mm. 90 minutes later, he he lands this interview. And I said, I think I just asked you, how you doing? Like, <laughs> yeah. um, like, not, like 90 minutes ago. Yeah. Like, yeah. And he just did it, man. And yes. it was it was funny and it was powerful and it was interest. Like, I mean, it was just yes. like yeah. absolutely wild. And and I just like, and I always thought like, now imagine if I asked about Dallas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. What you can do, Billy, what you can do just, you know, to to preserve, you know, your your little uh, boyhood uh, secrets that you had is do, do I mean, not Michael, silhouette, interview him, but don't change his voice and see if anybody knows what's time. Hey, to preserve the secrets of the 90s Cowboys, interview Michael in a silhouette. We will all be incriminated. Just in quotes, a playmaker. Yes, a person that made plays. What do you always say? What do you always say, Darren? If social media, I was say, what do you always say, Darren? If social media had been around back then, you all would not have played. We would not have. No, no, couldn't get a team. I firmly believe if I if I had social media in middle school, I'd be dead or in prison. I firmly, I firmly, firmly believe that. So true. That's oh, awesome. Well, well, Billy, we appreciate you, man. Thank yes. you for your time today. Yes. Time, guys. Thanks awesome. for having me. I appreciate you. <laughs> Thanks, Billy. Thanks, Billy. Anytime.